It is great to be with you. Thank you for being here. This is spring break week, right? How many of you have been on spring break this week? Would you raise raise your hand? All right, several of you. How many of you are on spring break 52 weeks out of the year? All right, the rest of you. Okay, all the rest of you. So it's always spring break where you are, right? That is fantastic. That is a good, good, good thing. I was in New York this week in New Jersey going to Princeton University visiting with some scholars there who have wonderful libraries we're talking to about. I, as the director of the Lanier Theological Library, I have the, 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 uh, I, I, am, I just have the opportunity to talk with some amazing people about their work and their history and uh, some of that we'll be sharing a little bit later on. I am, uh, I am, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I am not Mark Lanier. Uh, he's not here today, but I am his stunt double. He uh, he calls me in. You know, he does like like Tom Cruise. Mark does most of his stunts, but uh, every once in a while he calls me in to do the hard stuff. And today we got some hard stuff to do. And we're going to be looking today at the book of Zephaniah. So we're going to pick it up and open it up and see it. Uh, this is how it begins. This is the word of God or the word of the Lord, which was to Zephaniah. And we're going to talk a little bit about that name at the very beginning and uh, talk a little bit about what his name means and some connections to what he's saying in the book. People often drew connections between the name that they had been given at birth and the name by which they had been circumcised as a Jew and their mission, their task in the world. So we're going to take a look at that. Uh, and so here we go. If we go, yeah, there we go. Here's how the book begins. We're looking at Zephaniah. Zephaniah is actually not his name. It sounds a little bit odd, but it's Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the real name. It's like T-S, like in the word tsunami. We don't use that sound a lot in English, but other languages do. Especially Hebrew. It begins with a particular letter that has a T-S sound. So Zephaniah is his name. And his name ends in Yah. We'll say more about that in, more, in, the more, in a minute. But he's the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of King Josiah. Very important because of what was happening at his time. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history. Mark has been discussing that with you and uh, done an amazing job. Probably one of the best jobs I've ever heard, frankly on giving us kind of a context for the Assyrian Empire, its power, its might, its, uh, its intimidation of uh, all the other nations around it. So uh, the names that contain, like Zephaniah or Zephaniah, that last sound is really a shortened version for the name of God. And names that carry the name of God in, it, in, in, in Hebrew are called theophoric names because two Greek words, theos for God, for us, which means to bear or to carry. Names that carry, uh, human names that call, carry the name of God within it. So any name that ends in Yah or Ayah or El, like Ezekiel, those names like that are theophoric names. They carry in them the name of God. And so you see that throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the Old Testament. You see that the name, not of Cushi, but Gadaliah, Amariah, Hezekiah, all those names are bearing the name of God within them and carrying and representing God. I've read a re book recently about, about, from a woman that, that's, that's making the case that that our goal is to bear and to carry the name of God. That's what the commandment is about. It's a very interesting argument made by Carmen Imes in her book, um, Bearing God's Name. And the whole idea is we are not to bear God's name in vain. We're not to carry God's name with us in vain. Wherever we go, whether it's to the surgical center or whether it's on an airplane or whether it's just at home, we are to carry God's name on us and in us and represent that name well. And that's what Zephaniah does. Here's King Josiah. He reigned approximately from 604, sorry, 640 to 609 B.C. All right? About 31 years. A little bit of word about him. Let's see if we can make this work. This will be fun. Watch this. See if it happens. Oh, there we go. Having fun. Having fun. 
Now here's a fun, some fun facts about Josiah. His name really is Yoshiyahu. Yoshiyahu. If you know of a Jewish guy whose name is Yoshi, or he's called Yoshi, very common in Israel today, he is known as Yoshi, then his name is Yoshiyahu. That's, again, the shortened name of God, bearing God's name. A few fun facts about Yoshiyahu. First of all, he was, he was a, a boy king, and he was king, the 16th king of Judah. He was a boy king. He became king at eight years old after his father was assassinated. So he was very, very young when he came to the throne, but he reigned 31 years. He died, I think, a bit prematurely, making some bad decisions uh, about going into war and going uh, at the bat- before the Battle of Carchemish. But he ended up dying that way. And he is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. He's a part of the family line of Jesus. He's the great, 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 we could keep going, grandfather of Jesus. So he's back there in the line of Jesus. And he is known primarily as a reformer in his day, uh, as uh, changing up what had uh, earlier kings had messed up. By introducing the worship of other gods into Israel and Judah and allowing it and putting up with it and allowing the worship of other gods as well. More about that in a moment. He had the temple renovated. This was the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, that had fallen into disrepair. He had it renovated and made it the exclusive place, the one and only place in the world where it's permitted to worship the one true God. One true God, and there's one place to worship him. That is to worship him with sacrifices. Not these other shrines that are dotting the hills and around that are sometimes dedicated to this God and sometimes dedicated to that. No, there was one temple and that one, one God was to be worshipped in that one temple. Uh, during the, the, the renovations, they discovered a book that had been forgotten. It was called, they referred to it, Hilkiah the priest was his high priest at the time, uh, the, he said he found the book of the law. Now, we don't know exactly what he meant by that. He doesn't describe it any further than that. The book of the law, though, likely referred, I think, to the book of Deuteronomy or maybe parts of the book of Deuteronomy that were found and discovered. And it led to a religious reform at the time led by King Josiah, who's now in his 20s when this happens. So he had about a decade or so in his teens where he was king, and I think he fell under the preaching and the influence of Zephaniah. I may be wrong about that. I could be speculating a little bit too much, but I think that's very likely because Zephaniah had access uh, to, to, to royalty in his day. And his reforms, you can read about him in several places. I wish we had time, and maybe Mark will take time one day to look at those because they're really fantastic and really important. Uh, let's see. We've got to get this moving. It's not working right. Okay. The prophet Zephaniah is um, active by that preaching and teaching somewhere between 640 and 630. That's his, that's his time. So this is the, the decade of the teens, roughly, for the king. And he's be, I think, again, he's having influence on this teenager king who's moving into adulthood gradually and probably will be an influence on his life a bit later on and helping to sort of formulate what happens in his life a little bit later on so this is what we're going to do we're going to do several things number one we're going to take a look at some oracles against the nations very common among the prophets to have oracles against foreign nations the second thing is we're going to look at some oracles against judah that is his home territory That is the land where Josiah is king and the land that had been spared earlier when the Assyrian invasion came around 720 B.C. Then we're going to look at the book ends with a vision of hope. Ends with a vision of hope and finally some points for home. Which uh, Now I know Mark normally does three but I'm doing four because this is better to do four than it is to do three. So we're going to look, I think next, let's see, I've got to get all this right. Yeah, we're going to get this right. Oracles against the nation. We're going to start with that. But before that, we just need to know something about Zephaniah and something about, and this, 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 
this video will sort of display a bit about Zephaniah. Now, I need to apologize for the quality of the video because it's an old, older video. But I think you can get the idea of it. Gloom, despair, and agony A lot of gloom and despair in this book. A lot of oh me in this book. And uh, it's, it's there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. Because if you and I were facing what these guys were facing. Oh, I need to apologize, by the way, for the audio of that book. Oh, that, that's the video as well. The audio is there. Well, anyway, it's not too bad. Uh, it, it's a matter of gloom. It's a matter of despair. It's written against that backdrop because the country itself was suffering and suffering greatly. And so that song is is very much kind of on my heart when I read these prophets. Now to read this prophet profitably, we got to know a little bit about the book. Here's the way it's set up. First of all, superscription, which we read. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, etc., etc. That was the superscription of the book. Then there's oracles against Judah. We're going to start with the oracles against the nations, but, but uh, that's the next part of the book. So we're going to skip a part. We're going to go back to that. I think that's purposeful. And then at the very end of the book, before there is the restoration and hope in the prophet, what he says is that there's some reproaching against the city of Jerusalem, which is the center, the heart, the heartbeat of Judah at the time. And then finally, a prophecy of restoration. Now, in a sense, I look at that and I get hungry. I mean, that's a pretty good looking sandwich right there. In a sense, what we have in Zephaniah is a purposeful sort of sandwich, judgment sandwich, if you will. Starts with judgment against Judah, followed by judgment of the nations, followed by the judgment again against Judah. So it's sort of sandwiched in there before to show that God's judgment was going to come upon his people and the nations. Because there were many that were saying, God's not going to judge us. We have the temple. We are our true worshipers of Yahweh, the true God. And yet, at the same time, they were also dabbling in the worship of others, including the stars, the sun, the moon, the stars. They were dabbling in that. We know that that's happening too in the nation. So here's the here's the map. We've uh, Mark has shown this map a few times. This is the Assyrian Empire. This is the heart of it in the eighth century, which is the 700s, and it had grown and got to its uh, in a sense its its zenith of power by about 640, about the time that Zephaniah begins to prophesy. And so now its boundaries are here, all of this particular area, all of the Fertile Crescent. Nothing is down here other than a few few oases in the desert and a few tribes down there. It was not part of the, a part of the empire. But now it goes all the way down into Judah, to include that, all the way to Ethiopia, or what they called in those days, Cush, and which is now modern-day Sudan. Here's the area we're going to be looking at. This is Judah. There's Jerusalem. This is the, this is the Dead Sea. They called it Yam Hamelech, the Sea of Salt. By the way, in Hebrew, the word Melech means both king and salt. Yeah? King and salt. I'm not sure how those words are related, but every language has words that are spelled the same, sound the same, but mean different things. So, Melech and Melech means king and salt, depending upon context. So, we'll be looking at this particular area. This is the area in the north of Israel that had fallen almost a century before. It had fallen under the influence of the Assyrian Empire. And now we look the nations that we're going to be talking about. Here's the nation of Philistia. Their key cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod. Those are their key cities, their primary cities. Notice they're right along the coast. 
That becomes important. And then over here we have Moab, the Moabites right here. And uh, there's some evidence historically that this area right here of the Dead Sea had been closed up. In other words, you could walk across it. It was not very deep right there. And it had been, in fact, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, perhaps the way it's going now, this particular bit of land may appear once again, because up north, they're taking a lot of water that comes in from the north, from the Jordan River and from the Sea of Galilee. So much water is being taken. There's a water shortage over there, even now, especially now, as the population grows. And then we're going to be looking and talking a little bit about the Ammonites, the people over there. These are the nations that are going to be, in a sense, condemned by the prophet and be prophesied against for various and sundry reasons. Let's take a look at that. Here's one thing that starts off as it begins these oracles against Judah, but it's also universal. And this is what he says. Whoop, go back. Let's go back. There. I will utterly sweep away... Literally, it says, I will sweep away, sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Listen to the language here. Now, he's speaking for God. The I there is God. Zephaniah is not threatening the earth. He's speaking for God. I will sweep away utterly everything from the earth, declares the Lord. And there's the proper name of God. I will sweep away man and beast. Watch what happens here. Man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. That may not be the right translation of that particular line. It's a hard line to translate. And the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off humankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like Noah's flood, doesn't it? I'm going to cut it all off. The word cut off here doesn't mean, hey, you know, like on a freeway, somebody cuts me off. Oh, makes me angry. No, this is the word meaning utter destruction, annihilation. I will annihilate humankind from the face of the earth. Sounds just like Noah, doesn't it? But if you follow the sort of logic of this, I will sweep away, watch this, man and beast, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea. What does that sound like? Creation. It's creation in reverse. Because man was created last, before that, the beast, before that, the birds, before that, the fish of the sea. So God is going, says, I'm going to put creation in reverse. I'm going to uncreate. I'm going to discreate. I'm not sure that's a word. But completely, utterly reverse. Put creation in reverse, and man and beast and fish, or or, or birds and fish, are going to be utterly destroyed. Sounds like an eternal, everlasting threat, doesn't it? Sounds pretty serious. Gloom, despair, agony on me. So we're talking about Philistia as we begin, and their key cities. Oracles against the nations. Here, in particular, the Philistines. He says, for Gaza, their main, one of their main cities, shall be deserted. Ashkelon, another key city, shall become desolation. Ashdod's people will be driven out at noon. And Ekron shall be uprooted. These are the key cities. It's like saying, and New York, and Los Angeles, and Chicago, and Houston, a desolation. I'm going to desolate it all. Pretty serious business. Very serious for the nations. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, he says. Oi, you nation of the Carathites. This means people who have come over from the island of Crete. These were a, a, a people who lived on an island and they became very a naval power, a naval culture. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistine, I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Woe. Oi. Gloom. Despair. Agony on me. And you, O Seacoast, he says, 
you're going to become pastures. Now notice how the transition happens. I'm going to devastate your cities. They're going to be just ruin and rubble. But it's going to become pasture land. That starts to sound a little sweet if you're a person from Judah who has animals that you need to pasture. Your meadows are for shepherds and foals for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. Notice, everyone from the Philistines is cut off, but there will be a remnant of God's people. Is judgment coming to God's people? Absolutely. But there will be a remnant left. There will be a few survivors. And those few survivors are going to inhabit now the coastline. They're going to live there. They're going to inhabit the land and the houses and whatever's left. And they're going to be living in those houses. They lie down for the Lord. Oops, for the Lord, go back. For the Lord will be mindful and restore their fortunes. That is the fortunes of the Judahites, the people of Judah. Now, oracles against Moab and Ammon. We don't know where these oracles were given. We don't know if they were in the market or in the street or in the temple or in a royal meeting or some sort. We don't know. I have heard the taunts of Moab, God said, and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. They continually raided and they continually created havoc for the villages, particularly the ones close to their territories. And God says to them, this is where they're located. This is the Ammonites right here. This is what Ammon is saying. And there's the Moabites down there. And so oracles against Ammon. It continues. Therefore, as I live, God is taking an oath. He's making a pledge. Declares the Lord of hosts. Moab shall be like Sodom. The Ammonites shall be like Gomorrah. A land possessed. By nettles and salt, salt pits and waste forever. The remnant of my people, there it is again. A remnant of my people, Israel, the chosen people, the people of Judah will survive this onslaught of judgment. The remnant of my people will plunder them. And the survivors of my nation will possess their lands and all that they have. This is what God says is going to happen. Now, this is one of the hardest ones to understand, the oracle against Cush. The Cushites, this is just, a, just, just one phrase. You, Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Well, Cush, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Now, there's where Judah is up there in the north. It's, but Cush is this area right about there, modern-day Sudan. It's a long, 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 long way away. I mean, you can fly it in a couple of hours, but by foot, it's a long, long way. And here's the other. He starts oracles against Nineveh and the Assyrians. Nineveh, their capital city. He, that is God, will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation A dry waste like the desert. This is what God pledges to do against Nineveh. The superpower of the day. The empire of the day. The most powerful nation they had seen, they had ever known. This is what he says. This is the area. It's a big area. There's Nineveh. Nineveh is controlling all that area with military force and might and cruelty and deep taxes. Is becoming a wealthy nation at the expense of all these other smaller nations and peoples around. This is what God pledges. Now, here's, here's Nineveh. Get a little bit closer there. There's where it's located. Right there on the Tigris River. It's a beautiful river that ran through it. It's beautiful, beautiful setting. And, and here is, uh, well, that's a little closer. Uh, let me see if I can push this a little bit. Oh, there we go. Okay, good. All right, got that. All right, there's Babylon right there. Now, Babylon is growing at the time. It's getting more and more powerful. Babylon over here is joining up with the the Medes who are over here. And they're not too far away, but this this is where Babylon is located right there on the Euphrates River. 
that nation is growing, and that is going to become the imminent threat, imminent threat uh, of for for Assyria. And there's Babylon. There's Assyria. This is the exalted city. Think think about this. This is what the city says. The city is being anthropomorphized. Sounds like speaking like a man, speaking like a human being. This is the exultant city that lives securely, Nineveh, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. It's a pretty powerful boast, isn't it? This is what the king, Ashurbanipal, was all about. The one that that Mark has been showing you, that loved to to boast about his ability to read and to write. The one who who shot lions uh, and killed lions. This powerful, powerful animal. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes their fists. This powerful nation has been reduced to nothing. That's what's coming. This nation that said, I am, and there is no one else. It's interesting, when you go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, there's a very similar saying, goes like this. I am the Lord God, and there is no other. Over and over again, I am the Lord, and there is no other. The only, and this nation, this king, had claimed divine rights, claimed to be in a sense, God. This nation claimed to be God on earth. I am, and there is no other. Here's the city. It's an amazing place. Now, this is an artist's rendering, of course, of what would have been there. For people who lived in a one-story world, imagine coming upon this. A a world of mud huts, a world of small places. And you're traveling and you came upon this, whether by river or by foot, you came to this. It would strike you as powerful and awesome and intimidating. That was the point. To intimidate. To show power. All of this is going to tumble into ruins, the prophet said. All of this will become rubble and desolation and a haunt for jackals and owls and other critters that will just roam in and there will be nothing left one day. This is the threat that's being posed. Now, this is how it happened. In 627 B.C., the, the emperor, the king, died. And the nation began to fracture, fall into factions, that warred against themselves internally. There was a culture war inside, and it fell apart. At the same time, it was a coalition of two nations, Babylon to the south, the Medes to the east. And by 612, Nineveh had fallen. Fifteen years. Think about that. The movement from superpower of the world to desolation in 15 years. It's an alarm for anybody that thinks about history and nations and nation states. At the Battle of Carchemish, 605, it effectively ended anything that the Assyrians had. The army that was out and spread about, they, they, they came, they came to, to the truth late. It took half a generation... For the Assyrian Empire, half a generation to go from the greatest world power at the time to nothing. It's a bit worrisome, isn't it? We think about our own culture. We think about our own world, our own state. Oh, this is going to be around forever. Oh, this. No? Really? What lasts forever? Nothing. Ideas probably transcend other things, but nations have come and gone and come and gone throughout all history. Superpowers have been brought to nothing. 
The great nations of the world brought to nothing. And somebody else fills in the vacuum. Is there a word of caution here? Those are some oracles against the nations. That's the longest part of the book and uh, a good part of the book. But let's look at some oracles against Judah right now and try to get an understanding of what's going on at home around the prophet because it brings it closer to home, I think, for us. All right. Come on, move. There we go. Come on. Get it going. That's the very early part of the book. We can't do it all, but we're going to do a good bit of it. It says this. I will stretch out my hand. This is God now. I'm going to stretch out my hand. My shoe's caught on the carpet. Stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the key city. I'm going to cut off from this place, utterly destroy, annihilate the remnant of Baal, the God of the Canaanites, the name of the idolatrous priests, And those who bow down on their roofs to worship the host of heavens. Those who, on the one hand, bow down to the Lord God in the temple and do the right thing and yet go over to the other temple, the temple of Milcom, and worship there too. Just in case. I guess for a second opinion. You know? Just in case Milcom has some power. Just in case... The Assyrians are right, because Milcom was the god of the Assyrian people. And it infiltrated the land of, of, of Israel at the time, the land of Judah. Their goods will be plundered. Houses are laid waste. Though they build houses, they'll not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they're not going to eat the fruit of the vineyard. They're not going to drink wine from them. They're going to build a house, and somebody else is going to live there. It's happening in Ukraine right now. People who built houses, who paid for houses, lived in houses, and the Russians. This is how it happens in history. They're moving in. The businesses, they're moving in. Whatever's not destroyed, laid waste completely, they'll move in. They'll inhabit it. It's the way, the way, way it is with these powers. And God, God does judge them, but judges them late. I will bring distress on Adam, it says, mankind, humankind. Sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. I'm going to bring distress on them. They will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't go into detail here. Other than worshiping these other gods and some other things, he doesn't go into a great bit of detail on this. Another oracle against Judah. Neither their silver nor their gold is going to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth is consumed for a full and sudden end he makes of all the inhabitants of the earth. I mean, it sounds like total. It sounds like final, doesn't it? Don't think your money is going to do anything when God's judgment comes. Don't think your education is going to mean anything What are you trusting in? What are you hoping in? 401Ks? Stock market? Pension? What are you putting your hope in? The government? What are you putting your hope in? It's not going to stand. It's not going to do anything when the judgment of God comes. Notice what happens next, though. In the very next, and this happens in the prophets... Even as it sounds as if there is a total and complete calamity on its way. Notice the prophet. In the middle of that, there's an interlude. And we see this in prophetic literature. We see this in the book of Revelation in particular. Gather together, he says, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the degree takes place. Before the day passes, before this day of judgment comes, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you this day of his anger, his wrath, his anger, before that, gather together, come together. What does it say? Notice. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Do his just commands. 
Seek righteousness. Pursue humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of God's wrath. There's a connection there. What does his name mean? God is hidden. He said, perhaps when the judgment of God falls, perhaps if you have sought the Lord, if you've humbled yourself, if you do his just commands, perhaps, just perhaps, he'll hide you and you'll be saved. You'll be caught part of that remnant. You become a survivor when the judgment of God falls. And then it goes into the oracle about Gaza and Ashkelon. That's what happens next in the text. But I want you to see that. That's God's thoughts about Judah. Now finally, a vision of hope. Come to the end of the book. All the prophets do this. I love it. I love this part. Gloom, despair, and agony. Oh, me. All of this coming upon the earth, Zephaniah says. Their world would be rocked. Their world would be turned upside down. But now he says in this vision of hope, the very end of the book, therefore, God says, wait for me. Not just a passive sit back and, okay, I'm waiting on God, waiting on God, waiting on God. An active waiting. A waiting of seeking, a waiting of humility, a waiting of doing the commandments of God and doing the teachings, in our case, the teachings of Jesus as followers of Jesus. Because, you know, this prophet is speaking hundreds of years before Jesus was ever even born. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations. I'm going to assemble the kingdoms. I'm going to pour out indignation upon them. My burning anger and the fire of jealousy. That doesn't sound too hopeful, does it? Well, keep reading. Because it changes. It, it moves over. And he says this in 310. At that time, I'm going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. What does that sound like? Reversal of what? The Tower of Babel. We're going to turn this speech of all the nations into a, a pure speech. A reversal of Babel. Reversal of Babylon. In a way. And all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, serve him with one accord, all the way to Cush. <laughs> the rivers of Cush, with, by the way, which was the Nile. The headwaters of the Nile and its tributaries. All those rivers. All the people down there in the south. For from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring an offering. In other words, where are they coming? They're coming back to the temple. They're coming back to the temple. Jerusalem once again will be established. We see this over and again in the prophets. Where Jerusalem is the center of the world. And all the nations stream to it. All those survivors will stream to it. And then God says through the prophet, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. You have rebelled against me, but you will not be put to shame. You will survive. You will thrive. You will flourish in this land, this world that I have made. For I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You know, there's a point when people become so prideful that they just can't reverse course. They become so much into themselves and so narcissistic that they just cannot reverse course and humble themselves and seek God and seek His ways. Those people, he says, are going to be removed. You shall no longer, shall no longer be haughty, arrogant, uppity when they are on my holy mountain. That is Mount Zion, the place where the temple is built, the temple of Solomon. But I will leave in your midst a humble people, a lowly people. They shall seek refuge in my name. I'm going to leave those. They're going to be saved. Those who are left behind are those who are saved. They shall do no injustice, they shall speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze in those pastures as the people of God, as the, with my Lord as the shepherd. 
They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Fear becomes a thing of the past. That's the world that is coming after the judgment of God falls. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. Exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away. He's forgiven. He's taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away the enemies. King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, and you will never again fear evil. Evil will become a thing of the past. The Lord will be in our midst. This, these are the, the kinds of things that informed the book of Revelation when it was being written. This kind of vision of the future that he describes becomes the way that John from the island of Patmos begins to think about the new heaven and the new earth. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your, not your hands grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the world that is to come. The Lord in the midst. Powerful. The mighty one will be here to save. Rejoicing. Happiness. Joy again. Joy returned. After the woe. After the calamity. It is surely coming. And did come. In the world of Zephaniah. 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 I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather together the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. The disabled, the lame, the outcast become fully enfranchised members. Full. Fully recognized as members of the people of God. Never again to be put to shame by their disability. Never again to be put to shame by, by uh, uh, being an outsider or being a marginalized person. Shame is an interesting thing. Finally, it's the last verse and we're going to draw some conclusions. Some really important conclusions coming. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When, God says, I restore your fortunes before your eyes. This is how the book ends. I am going to restore your fortunes. Judgment is coming. It will fall. But God will hide some of you. Preserve you. And you will inhabit the land and live and flourish and rejoice once again in this land, this land of promise. So here's, here's the world that is being described. Judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. I'm wondering what a prophet today would say about our place and our nation and our history. What would a prophet today say? A prophet like Zephaniah. What would a prophet say? Would he say judgment is coming? Judgment is coming? And then restoration. This is the way of God. It happens over and over again in the history of Israel, history of God's people. But fortunes are going to be restored in the broadest sense not going to say if you lose a million dollars you're going to get a million dollars that's not what he's talking about he's talking about having our fortunes having our lives back having our our world back whatever we have lost having my world back again the world that we know and love our fortunes are restored the nation will be great again by nation it doesn't mean nation state it means the people of god Wherever they live, the people of God will be great again because they're bearing God's name, living faithfully under God's name, reversing the shame of the lame and the outcast, the Lord in their midst, delivered from all of their enemies. Think about how many psalms are praying for deliverance from our enemies. And then finally, and importantly, forgiveness. Is that the last one? That was one more. Justice and humility. 
God's justice, God's humility throughout all. Let's draw some conclusions, points from home. I think we're okay on time. A few points from home. We see this over and again in the prophets. Obedience to God brings blessing. Disobedience is going to bring hardship. It's a pattern. You can pretty much count on it. You obey God, you'll be blessed. You disobey God, you're going to face some hard stuff. And sometimes the hard stuff comes from the thing itself, not necessarily from God. This is what God said, or the prophets, uh, Paul said, said God gives you up to your sin. God gives you over to your sin. And you're punished by the sin itself. The sin itself is the punishment. But obedience brings blessing. Disobedience. You say, well, didn't you say that last time you were here? Yeah, I did, because all the prophets are saying it. I'm just repeating what they're saying. Seek God. Be just. Follow God's commandments. You'll be blessed. Perhaps you might be hidden when the onslaught comes. When the calamity comes. And then he says, it's another thing that I kind of draw from this. You may have other, other conclusions that you draw from it. This is something that I've I got to be careful about. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Uh, sometimes it's people, I've heard Christians say this, I'm so glad we're not under that God of the Old Testament. All that wrath and gloom and despair, same God. There is a difference, though. There is Jesus Christ, His Son, who came into the world, lived perfectly as one of humility, living with God, praying, living his life perfectly in the world and upon whom much of the wrath of God is poured in his death. But he's resurrected too. So there is a difference between what's happening in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that difference is Jesus. Always. The difference between what's going on then, what's going on now, and what happens with us is that we have a connection and can have a connection with Jesus so that our sins are forgiven and we live according to his pattern of life, imitating him. But the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New. Is wrath real? Yes. Is destruction real? Yes. Is forgiveness real? Yes. Is being hidden from the calamity that is to come. Yes. That's part of it. Another lesson I think we can derive from here is that God hates idolatry in all its forms and will punish those who practice it. Now, we don't have little statues, perhaps, in our home and that we feed and we offer, you know, we clothe, we do other things. So we, we don't do that, but we do other things, perhaps. Idolatry in all of its form. Whatever, whatever you value most can be an idol. Whether it's your reputation or your lifestyle or your education or what you've achieved. Whatever you think about the most, one scholar said, that's your God. Whatever you put your mind on the most, that's your God. Your central concern is God for you. So is it, is it leisure what is it? That can become an idol for all of us. And God hates that because it takes away our devotion and obedience to God ultimately. Finally, no, this is not finally, I don't think. Every empire, every superpower in one generation, one generation, always away from collapse. And becoming the dust of history. Every nation. In one generation. Can collapse completely. Become. Just a, just a footnote in history. 
that's kind of fearsome to think about in our day. But it won't happen if the citizens of that or the subjects of that empire or the citizens of that nation are people of virtue and humility who seek God and do as the prophet says. It can be forestalled. It can be put off. But it requires a citizenry of virtue and goodness. Goodness to one another, goodness to God, goodness to creation. Goodness. Every, every empire. That's what happened with Assyria. What happened with Babylon? Same thing. Took about 150 years later before it happened. And finally, I think this is finally, seek the Lord while he may be found. That's our job. Seek God. Actively seeking. Not sitting back waiting. I'm just waiting for God to do something. No, actively seeking. Actively seeking while he may be found in humbling ourselves. Realize who we are. Laying aside any arrogance, any pretensions at all. That's what he's saying. That's what Zephaniah is saying. He's a prophet of gloom. A prophet of despair. And yet he sees this new world that is coming. Humble yourself before God. One more. <laughs> I'm, I'm miscounting. Days to come, that's what it, there is a new world coming. We might be loaded with despair today, rightly so. We might be need encouragement, rightly so. But there's a new world coming. We can look forward to that. As we seek God, as we humble ourselves, as we do good to one another and do good to the earth, our destination is a new creation, a new world to come. Zephaniah saw that in his day. The other prophets saw it as well. And that's a refrain that we hear over and again in the scriptures, in the holy books of that, the, the Old Testament, in the minor prophets. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these good folks. I pray that some will, who are not today seeking you will begin to seek you with all their hearts. I ask that those who are committed to a life of arrogance and pretension will lay that aside and be lowly and humble like your servants have passed. We pray for our country. We pray for our nation. We pray that we will be people of virtue and valor. We'll be people worthy of this great nation. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.